0: Greetings to all my cool cats and cool kittens. They try to copy our style, but they stay frostbitten. From the broadcast to the podcast, it is your man DM Cool, and this is Cool Radio. What we do is. They be watching us. We so prosperous. Ain't no stopping us. Ain't no topping us. They be watching us. We so prosperous. Oh, you didn't know. Your ass better call somebody. Yes, yes, y'all. Tell a friend to tell a friend that we are now live on the net wherever you listen to podcasts. This is another edition of Cool Radio with your man DM Cool. And we have so much to get to on today's edition. So we got to talk about the fallouts. The fallout that happened on the Joe Budden uh, broadcast. Pardon me. I can't even get it out right. Um, But, yeah, we have to talk about the fallout of that as he basically gave a live execution of the firing of his former co-host Rory Amal. So we're going to discuss that heavily. And I'm also going to give you a J. Cole album review off of his latest project, The Offseason. So that is going to take up the entire Trip Talk segment, because I figured that's probably arguably the biggest thing happening in hip-hop news this week. And I figure... I may as well give you guys a review on that album. I just finished listening to it for the second time before Hoppy on this pod, so it's fresh in my mind, fresh in my memory. So we're going to dive into all of that. But before we do, you guys already know how I do. I got some stuff to get off of my chest, y'all. So on that note, I think it's time to let that dish breathe. Let this bitch breathe. bitch breathe. breathe. Indeed, indeed. So... Let's start off with this. This week, I think it was Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. Wednesday, May 7th. No, not 17th. We're not even at the 17th. That's what am i talking about. It was on May 12th. I think it was May 12th. If I'm wrong on that date, please fact check me on that. But it was on that date, two years ago, in 2019, that we saw one of the most miraculous shots in NBA history that was taken by one Kawhi Leonard. Yes, I'm talking about that shot, the shot that took four bounces to get into the damn hoop. We are at the two-year anniversary of that shot. And it seems like, on one end, a distant memory, but on the other end, seems like yesterday that it happened. Man, let me take y'all back, okay? Let me take y'all back to how I remember that shot. Because it's been a while since I've actually discussed hoops on this pod. It's been at least a good month or so. Um, I definitely haven't talked Raptors hoops in a while, especially with how things have gone this season. Uh, It's a damn shame. No playoffs for us for the first time in eight years. So, hey, let's reminisce on the good times during our championship run. Seems oh so long ago, but yet again, it seems like yesterday at the same time, but I digress. So as I remember it, it was a Sunday night, Sunday night, game seven, and the nerves were running through my body the entire day because when it comes to game seven, you never know where it could go. It could go one way, it could go the other way. Either way, both teams are knotted up at three games apiece. So it's anyone's game at this point. You can say that Toronto has a slight advantage because they are the ones who have the home court advantage. They're playing at home. They're playing in Toronto at Scotiabank Arena. The crowd is packed. Of course, Jurassic Park was always packed. Myself, personally, I was watching the game from the comfort of my own home. And It's funny because I was watching it by myself and my dad said, do your thing. Go watch it by yourself. It's cool. I'll handle dinner tonight. It's all good. You you just do you. He's <laughs> like, do you, man. Do you. He's like, all right, cool. Um, so I'm watching the game now, and I'll be honest. It wasn't a pretty game. It was not a pretty game, to say the least. More game. i sorry. More team. More. There was more focus uh, that was placed on the defense as opposed to the offense, and for obvious reasons. You don't want to let any bucket in there because – That could cause a 5-0, 10-0 run, and you don't know where you could go at that point. But nonetheless, it was a grind-out session. Kawhi Leonard was putting in buckets, especially during the second half of the game. Serge Ibaka was low-key the next best person after Kawhi Leonard because he hit all, damn near all of his shots. I I even remember hitting him a shot over Ben Simmons in his eye from three-point range. So good for Serge when he was knocking down shots when when we needed him to. But Kawhi took full control of that game. It, it seemed like all the other players aside from him and Surge were very timid, didn't really know what to do, didn't really know how to execute the buckets down the stretch, which is why you need a star, at the very least, a star player of a high caliber to get you to that finish line. It can't just be like, hey, guys, we're a team. Team concept was great. But if you don't have a designated bucket getter, you're not going far. I just want to put that out there. Anyways, let me continue on. So second half, Kawhi goes into, goes into you know, DEFCON 5 mode where he's just pouring in bucket after bucket. And he's just willing this team to get to the finish line. So we get to a point where Kawhi gets to the uh, free throw line. It's 89-88 the Raptors. Kawhi hits the first free throw. Now it's 90-88 Raptors. But then Kawhi shoots the second free throw and he uncharacteristically misses that free throw. So what happens? Philly gets the rebound. They push it up. I think it was it was um Jimmy Butler who got the rebound and just pushed it from coast to coast and finished with the lay-in or layup rather. And so now we're tied at 90 apiece with 4.2 seconds left. I am hella nervous at this point in time. Hella nervous. You want to know why I'm hella nervous? Because about 18 years ago from that date, I was 12 years old. And I was watching a very, almost eerily similar scenario take place. I was at my brother's friend's barbecue, and we were all watching this game together. I was by far the youngest person there. Everyone else was probably like in their like early to mid-20s. And I was watching The Raptors play against the Sixers in Philadelphia this time. And as opposed to it being tied 90 apiece, the Raptors were down 88 to 87. So very similar score, very similar score. But there was two seconds left. Vince Carter gets the ball from the side pocket, just outside the three-point line, gives Tyrone Hill a pump fake, shoots it, hits the rim, but falls away from the rim. Game over. Raptors lose 88-87 to in the conference semifinals in a classic series, if I may say so myself, between Vince Carter and Allen Iverson. But I can tell you from that moment, I experienced my first ever heartbreak in the playoffs. Because that one stung. Because I really thought that we were going to go to the Eastern Conference Finals and play against the Milwaukee Bucks. I really did. But it just wasn't meant to be. Allen Iverson was in his bag that year. He was the MVP. Couldn't stop him. Well, except for Kobe and Shaq. But take that in. It took two top five All-Stars in their primes. Well, Shaq was in his prime, Kobe was approaching prime to stop Iverson. Says a lot about him. Definitely a Hall of Famer in in every sense of the word. But as we rewind or sorry, as we fast forward back to that current moment in time in 2019, I had that flashback and I just said to myself, man, I do not need the heartbreak not again. As a Raptors fan, I've gone through heartbreaks for so many years, especially the last three years in a row where LeBron James basically mollywopped us and had no remorse and no regard for any human life that was wearing a Raptors jersey, uniform, or any type of fan para- para- paraphernalia at that moment or during those years. I just I didn't have enough room in my heart for that for that for that trauma anymore. I just didn't. It's like we traded DeMar DeRozan for Kawhi Leonard. A proven NBA champion, MVP candidate, defensive player of the year, all that. I was like, no more heartbreak. I'm done with it. No, I can't take this anymore. Now, mind you, you can say to yourself, if you miss the shot, you go into overtime. But you don't know what's going to happen in overtime. Overtime is way too much of a gamble to put all your bets on. So I said to myself, Kawhi, we brought you here for a reason. We traded away, at the time, the greatest Raptor of all time so that we could have your services to get us to the Larry OB. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what this man did. This man grabbed the ball, went from the left side to the right side of the court, and I said to myself, what is he doing? What, is, like, Why does he just stop midway? You know, do a couple shimmy shimmies and and try to get the best shot possible. What is he doing? But I was like, okay, let let, let me just see it play out. So he gets the ball, runs from one side of the court to the other. Dribbles, of course, don't need to tell you that. At first, Ben Simmons is covering him. And then it switches on to Joel Embiid. And then Kawhi puts up one of the most highest arcing shots I've ever seen a player put up. Definitely the highest arc-shot I've ever seen him put up, because this is like a straight up laser beam. And Joel Embiid is like a is he's he is a legitimate seven-footer. Not these six ten and a half, six eleven and one quarter guys who everyone keeps saying he is a seven-footer. No. This guy is a legitimate seven-footer. Seven foot two to be exact, and outstretches his arm. And his arm just misses the ball. And you see that thing float up in the air. And then all you hear, depending on what broadcast you're listening to, I was listening to Sportsnet, so I heard Matt Devlin. So I heard him say, for the win! And then once the play was done, after after all that was done, I watched the replays I was hearing from, from Kevin Harlan, and all I heard him say, is this the dagger? And then, out of nowhere, all you hear is pure silence. Almost pure silence. To the point where... You could actually hear the ball bounce on the rim repeatedly. And typically you can't anyway during the an NBA broadcast because they have the mics attached to the rims and what have you. So you hear all, all the clanking and what have you. But this time it was just like, you heard it. It was like, this is going to sound like the most cliche thing to say, but you're, it was almost like a pin drop. But that's how it really felt. And mind you, I'm standing. I'm not even sitting down. I'm standing on my feet and I'm pacing back and forth. And I may be like two or three feet away from my TV at this point. And I have, I feel like I have my, 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 my hands on the cuff of my shirt or the collar of my shirt, rather just clenching it. And every time the ball bounced on the rim, I was like, ah, ah, ah. And then on the fourth bounce, it looked like it was going in. But I was like, no, my eyes are deceiving me right now. Maybe that's just what my mind wants you to see. But like at that fourth bounce, like the ball is like halfway in. So I didn't want to celebrate yet. I just wanted to see it fall down to the bottom of the hoop so I can fully celebrate. And then when it fell to the bottom of the hoop, I was like, oh my god, holy shit, oh shit, shit, oh my god. I burst burst the door open, oh my "Dad, Raptors win, Raptors win, oh my god. Like, I'm freaking out like it's a freaking championship game. And and my dad's like, okay, calm down, you're going to wake up the neighbors. And I'm just freaking out, oh my god. I was freaking the hell out. Out, I was spazzing out, and I see Ka- Kawhi Leonard screaming, Rawr! The blue tongue, Rawr! all the crowd, all the players crowding around him. You see a few, um, few fans city courtside crowding around him as well. Oh my God, pandemonium in in full effect. I couldn't believe what I just saw because first and foremost, you don't see shots like that often, and secondly. You don't see shots like that often fall in the favor of the Raptors. Usually, the Raptors are on the receiving end of those shots, especially the year before when LeBron put up that ridiculous floater over OG and it banked in. We, as Raptor fans, never have those moments. And if they do, then they're fleeting at best. But this? This hit different. Oh, my God. And then, just after just being caught up in in the euphoria of it all, you see... Joel Embiid crying in tears in, in the arms of Mark Gasol. I'm like, wow. I, like, I wasn't even roasting him at that point. Mind you, he kind of had it coming because he was super cocky throughout the entire series doing the airplane stuff and everything, and then making excuses after, after they would lose a game in the series. You would be like, oh, I was tired. I, I told coach before the game, I was tired, wasn't really feeling well, you know, but I'm going to play and, uh, you know, see how it goes. Like, all that shit, Right. But then just to see him cry and ball out in tears like that and even, you know, Ibaka going up to him, you know, big brother OG Ibaka, big Africa going up to him, just, you know, just saying, you know, it's all good, man. Like, you're going to have your championship one day. And then just to see him go into the tunnel, just sulking, tears, sulking. I've rarely seen any NBA player that emotional before. Usually, like, they'll cover it up in... In in the in the towel, or they'll be in somebody's arms, so you can't really see their facial expression. But we saw his face, pure tears, just sulking, lip trembling, face clenched up, like the ugly, like the ugly cry, you know. And I was like, wow, we actually did that to somebody. We actually did that to somebody. Man, that moment was special. That moment was special. And then just as like, the fun part, just to see the um, the viral reactions of on people's cell phones, whether they're at the game or they're watching the game on their own television television sets and they're recording on their phones. It's like, yeah, like we all felt that way. And then seeing the, the replay of it over and over again. And I, I even told my dad, like, oh, dad, this is why I was screaming like a madman. Watch this. Watch this shit. So you watched it, and he was like, oh, oh, wow. Kawhi did that? I was like, yup. He's like, oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hell, I showed this to my sister months after when she came down from the UK, you know, back when it was safe to travel. And she's not a basketball fan that much, really. Like, I can't... Like, if I asked her when was the last time she watched the basketball game, it was probably 20 years ago. Let's be honest, right? No shots to her. That's just what it is, right? So I showed her the shot, and she's like, fuck off. That actually went in? <laughs> and, 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 the, and the beauty about that is that that was from a reaction from somebody who doesn't watch basketball often. And that kind of leads me to my next point. It's that that shot was so big in the world of basketball and in the world of sports it permeated throughout the mainstream. I don't know how it was received in in, in America as far as the mainstream goes, but if we're talking about the Canadian mainstream, every network picked this up. Global, CTV, City TV, CBC, everyone covered it. And it was at that moment that the Raptors became a mainstream commodity for that moment, at, at the very least, throughout the entirety of the nation of Canada. Everybody was talking about it. Like, it was amazing. And everyone was like, oh, who was Kawhi? Who who are all these guys who play for the Raptors? Let's get to know everybody. The funny thing about that, at the end of the day, was throughout that time, it didn't really feel like Kawhi was part of the team. It felt like Kawhi, and this is just my personal assertion, you know, I'm not saying this with the benefit of hindsight, where, where he is now and what have you. It just felt like to me, that up until then, Kawhi felt like a guy who was just punching into work every day. You know, it's like punch in, punch out, punch in, punch out. I didn't really get get that same level of community that I got from other players who were on the team playing with one another. Like the sense of community that I got from Kyle and Fred and Serge. And even Mark, who had only been with the team for like what three months up until that point. I felt like they were more a part of the team than Kawhi was. I felt like Kawhi was there just to do his job, play to the best of his ability, and, and then that was it. It felt almost felt like Kobe in his early years as a member of the Lakers, just kind of like that, that loner type. But, you know, to Kawhi's credit, he was on an episode of How Hungry Are You, right? And Kawhi usually gets his teammates to hop on that show and what have you. Interestingly enough, I watch Open Gym and every player has their own feature on Open Gym from time to time. And Kawhi did, but they were basically using footage from Kawhi's early days in college and 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 his early days with the Spurs. But they never got that one-on-one interview with Kawhi during that time. And everyone did, but not Kawhi. So I was like, huh, that's, that doesn't feel right. But I felt like at this moment... Kawhi was a member of the Toronto Raptors. He wasn't just an NBA player suiting up to pour in buckets and help whichever team he was on to win. It felt like he was a member of the Toronto Raptors. That moment when he hit the shot and he 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 let out that primal scream, and all this all of his teammates were huddled around him, hugging him and, and cheering him on, yeah, like, and all that stuff. At that moment. He felt like a Toronto Raptor. And from then on, you guys already know the rest is history. The rest is history. If I could go if I could give whatever I could to go back into like a time machine. And not to correct anything, but to just be a fly on the wall and just to relive that moment one more time. Just to see my reaction. And everyone else's reaction. Cause let me tell you, that was. I would say 2019 as a whole, for the most part, was a very difficult time in my life. But to see that shot and just to see that entire playoff run from the Raptors leading all the way to the championship and the parade was arguably the biggest bright spot of the year for me that year. And if you know, then you know. But I'm glad I was able to witness that, especially within my adult years. Because then, you know, if I get to a point where I do have kids, (laughs) I can sit them around the fireplace and be like, let me tell you about what happened in 2019. And I can at least hope by that time, the Raptors will at least have one or two more championships, Lord willing. But I'm glad that I have that memory with me. And I'm glad that that memory took place. But where were you guys? When that shot happened, were you at the game? Were you watching it? Were you not watching the game at all? Are you not even a basketball fan, (laughs) but you heard about the shot regardless? Either way, let me know. Hit me up on all my socials. I'd be curious to know what what y'all thought about that shot and what it meant to the franchise and what it meant to you personally as a whole. All right, now let's get to the mic check topic of the week. And this has to deal with the fallout of what happened during the Joe Budden podcast. And I'm talking about the fallout between Joe, Rory, and Mal. Now, I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret. So, this portion of the podcast that you're hearing right now, in real time, I am recording this portion on Sunday, right? Sunday, May 16th. The majority of the pod I recorded on Saturday, May 15th. And on that pod, I also recorded my response to what Joe Budden had said during his portion of the podcast when he was talking about the details of why he fired Rory and Mal. And at this point in time, we hadn't gotten a response from Rory and Mal. So basically, I was only reiterating what Joe Budden was stating on his version of the pod. And when I mean reiterating, I'm just basically repeating the things that he was claiming to have been reality. And my response to it was, this doesn't really make that much sense. Like, I understand what he's saying and all the things that he's saying, and they sound nice and pretty good in theory, but based on whom we perceive Rory and Mal to be, this isn't adding up. And that we need to hear what Roy and Mal have to say. Because if what Joe is saying is true, then it makes Rory and Mal look crazy and it makes him look nonsensical about how to handle business essentially. So that was the thought that I came to that, that that came to my mind when I was recording that pod. Now that portion of the pod will never see the light of day because now we have both the responses from Joe as well as Roy Yamal. So I'm just going to combine them all together in this segment, because why the hell not? Literally, what happened was I recorded that. I was done finito, and I recorded that between 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I got an update from one of my friends stating that Rory and Mal have posted their response. And I got this update late at night, probably around... I want to say around 9 or 10 p.m., so I had already long since recorded the pod. And I listened to the response earlier this morning. And what I heard, oh, oh, oh wow. I said to myself to hell with it. I will re-record this portion of the podcast if I have to, but this needs to get out. So with that said, this is now the uh revamped, remastered version of Mike Check. So with that being said, let's get into the particulars of both conversations that were held by Joe and that were held by Rory and Mal. So just to give you a brief synopsis of what happened on the earlier episode of the Joe Budden podcast that took place this past week. Joe basically stated, well, he stated a lot. Let's keep it 100. He definitely stated a lot, Um, but... One of the things that he made known on the show was that he has now fired Rory Amal. So that part we already know throughout the week. And what he alleged on the show was how Rory was trying to audit him on the financials of the show. And that he claimed that he felt that he didn't look at his contract properly. So those are just two of the claims. So one about the audit and the other about the contracts looking funny. Roy and Mel go on, I guess you could say they go on the offensive and they state that they were not, in fact, trying to audit and that they just wanted to look into the particulars of their contract because of the fact that they are paid based on percentages. So that's one thing that the rest of the public did not know, that they're paid based on on percentages. So at the very least, you can look at them as contractors and at the most, you can look at them as minority stake owners. I tend to view them as, minor- as minority stake owners because of the fact that they're being paid in percentages. And because of the fact that they are founding members of this podcast as far as this iteration of what we know it to be. So obviously, they're not going to be majority stake owners because it's it's Joe at the end of the day. It's his name that's on it. He's the one who, who started it. Initially, but Joe, or sorry, but Roy Amel helped build it up essentially. Now, Joe in his pod was saying how they are paid based on salary. And a lot of people were making this alleged claim just, I guess, because they're hopping on the bandwagon, the bandwagon of slander, as I like to call it. But Roy Mal made it very clear that they are, in fact, Paid on percentage and not based on salary Because if you're based on salary Then it means that you're an employee of the company And Rory and Mal are not Employees of the company they are Basically my, minority owners In the company so they do have a say On you know what their Financials are and like and what Access they are given to based on What was negotiated within their Contracts This is all information that they Made apparent on their response To Joe Budden so let's keep this so let's let's also keep it going on this. So he and by he I mean Joe offered them clips of the show to post on their YouTube channels to build their own buzz. This is what he this is what was alleged by Joe. This was refuted by Rory about. That did not happen. He also pointed out and by he I mean Joe that the rift began with the Spotify deal and Roy thought that Joe was earning more money from it than reported. So this one's a half truth because Roy did say that a part of the Rift did be did happen when the Spotify deal did take place. However, the rift comes into play when Roy wanted to know what the percentages would be as far as as far as how much Roy and Mal would be making. Since, again, they are paid based on percentages and Joe basically turned that into an argument and tried to shut that down immediately, which I found very interesting. Because, again, if this is a new business ventureship that you're going into, then you want to know what the percentages are going to be like going forward. Also, one of the main things that Joe said was that he was going to take Roy amount to court for breach of contract. And I find that very interesting because within – we don't know the particulars, the specific particulars of their contracts as far as, you know, what they can do as far as hosting a podcast within the next year or anything like that. But based on all the things that Joe said in his pod, in his episode, the fact that he took it down immediately after he posted it says a lot because – Joe said a lot of things that are based on Rory Amal's account, which actually sounds like it adds up a lot more is completely false. So right now at the very least, you're already going into a defamation, a defamation of character lawsuit and anything that you say can, and will be use you in the court of law. It's cliche, but it's a fact. So if all of what Joe button was saying was true, then why take down your pod? Why take down that episode? See, what Joe fails to realize is that this is the Internet. Nothing is ever wiped away from the Internet because people have made copies on it over Twitter, over, over a whole bunch of uh, other other avenues. So Joe slipped up. He slipped up. He slipped up. Like him taking down his pod, as well as giving this big apology to Rory Amal throughout the pod, comes across as an omission of guilt. So now let's go specifically into more details of what Rory and Mal were saying during their, and I'm not even going to call it a pod because I guess they can't really call it a pod for, for legality reasons, allegedly. But let's see what Rory Amal said during their video recording. So Roy stated that he's been a part of the podcast since episode one. Uh he said that he posted it on, <clears throat> He said that he posted it on his personal SoundCloud page, and then even one of his friends did the artwork for the First Ever Pod. And that goes against the claim that Joe Button made stating that he only showed up on episode twenty of the pod. So Joe, and this is according to Roy, asked Roy to personally show up on the pod from episode five onward. So I guess what Rory was saying was that he was working behind the scenes on the podcast from episode one, but then became like a full time co-host from episode five onward, which I can understand. Also, you know, people throughout the week have been kind of clowning Rory and saying that he's an employee, he's not a businessman, he's not out here making moves uh, or not bringing anything to the table. However, Rory stated during the video that he met up with Elliot Wilson, who, who owns the, uh, the, the Rap Radar brand, and he's a part of Tidal. And he mentioned to Rory that he wanted to do something with podcasts. And he wanted to start like a podcast branch of Tidal and how the Joe Budden show would, would be perfect for it. And he mentioned to him a few rough numbers as far as what it would look like. And so Rory said, okay, cool. I'll bring it to Joe's attention. He brought it to Joe's attention. Joe apparently snaps at him, freaks out at him, and telling him that he shouldn't be making business moves without him. Even though he wasn't, he was just listening to what Elliot Wilson was saying and said that he would bring that attention to Joe. But then the joke is, weeks later, Joe said how he got into contact with Elliot Wilson about a potential deal with Tidal. The exact same deal that Elliot brought to Roy's doorstep. And the same one that Joe Budden freaked out at Roy about, apparently. Hmm. Okay. Seems a little egotistical and narcissistic, but okay. All right. Not, All right. Not, I'm not surprised. This is Joe. We've been saying that this is Joe, but okay. But uh, let's keep it moving. Let's keep it moving. Going back to the Spotify conversation, they said, or sorry, Roy said that they all got their lawyers. So Roy got his, Mal got his, Joe got his. They brought their lawyers to the table and discussed the terms of agreement. And they all agreed that YouTube was off the table as far as visibility, Um, as far as Roy and Mal getting paid off of visibility, because the YouTube channel started way before uh, Joe Budden ever had the podcast. So they said the YouTube stuff was off the table. And there was no pushback from Roy and on that because they understood that and recognized that. And also going back to their their term of pay, he also mentioned about their contracts being based on percentage based. And so, again, that means at the very least that you're a contractor at the most. You're probably you probably have an ownership stake. And in this case, they had a minority ownership stake because of the fact that they helped build this pod from the ground up. Of course, Marissa is not Marissa. Um, what was her name? Is it Marissa? I think her name is Marissa. The They had the original female co-host who Joe Budden fired because she caught feelings, which is a dumb reason to fire somebody. Um, she, of course, she was there from the beginning. But again, the podcast was still within its infancy stages. But anyways, let's keep it moving. And here's where things get interesting. So Roy also details a point in time where... Mistakes were made by the accounting firm, and he pointed them out to the accounting firm, and he stated that there's about $400,000 that were not accounted for. And so he brought that attention to their accounting firm, which I think they mentioned. I think they said it was wealth management, and the accounting firm looked at those numbers and later stated that it was, in fact, a mistake on their part. On, on the part of of their of the accounting firm. So they they took the L on that, and they owned that. And then Joe tried to condescend them for that, and that's where the auditing allegations came from. It's like, oh, why are you trying to audit me for? And it's like, and Roy, Roy said that, Joe, I'm not trying to audit you. I'm just pointing out an error that the accounting firm made, and the accounting firm themselves even confirmed that they made that error. <laughs> man joe 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 all right let's keep it going let's keep it going there are more details um with regards to mall joe button stated that when they were roommates joe was the one who was handling most of the finances within their household so he tried to make it sound like mall was his dependent. And you made the big deal about Maul not sharing his laundry detergent or something like that. And then Maul refuted that stating that he never had to Joe depend on Joe for money or housing. And also stated that whenever when Joe was a rapper, back when in, in his rapping days, whenever there was a show uh, that he was gonna do anywhere, I guess within New York, or wherever the case may be, he would always give him the plug on what venues were popping and what venues were were needing an MC to perform for the night. And he gave him those details and gave him the hookups on that because he knew some of the promoters. He didn't, And he even stated that he, he didn't even ask him for money. He just did it because that's his boy. That's his friend. He knows how talented he is. And he was just supporting his friend. He didn't even ask for money on that, which I found very interesting. And it was also stated that Joe was claiming that Rory ML abandoned the pod when in reality it was him who stated that. Not only should Roy take time off, but they should all take time off from the pod, including Joe himself, and reconvene in a month. But then a week later, Joe shows up to the pod with two new hosts. So if this is something that you agreed upon in doing, that all three should take a break from the pod and reconvene after, then why are you showing up on the pod a week later with new hosts? So when we're talking about transparency and respect or when they are talking about transparency and respect, now we have full context into what they're discussing because a lot was being hidden from their final broadcast as a a team together. And I felt like they're just walking on the eggshells and not really addressing the situation they had. Now, this is starting to make a lot more sense, especially when you're talking about transparency and respect, because You fully lied to their faces saying, you know what, we're going to take a month off and reconvene and and recollect and all that good stuff. But then you show up to the pod a week later with brand new hosts. That's pretty shiesty. But anyways, let's keep it going. So when it comes to contracts now, I guess Roy and Mal were nearing the end of their contracts. Mind you, these contracts are something that Joe was not in favor of at the beginning. He didn't want anyone to be on contracts. Why? Because then that means that you're obligated to compensate them. Something that Joe didn't want to do. But Roy let it be known that that should be done in order to make things fair, make things... Yeah, just make things fair in general. And so that there's no funny business that's happening. But anyways, I digress. Fast forward. I guess they were coming up on on contract renegotiations. And Joe stated... That they should be paid on salary. To which both Roy and Al said, no, we're not gonna get paid on salary. We're already being paid in percentages. Why? Because we are minority owners in this pod. So why the hell would we regress and go to salary? Because once you go to salary, you relinquish any power or any or any ownership stake that you have within that pod. At that point, that is when you become an employee. And obviously Roy and Mal did not want to demote themselves to at all. You know, not even to an extent, but at all. They don't want to, they didn't want to demote themselves. And I don't blame them for not wanting to, because you helped start the pod. You helped made it into what it was. And going into that portion, Roy, or sorry, not Roy, Mal was saying how Joe's ego was so out of control. he, he already had an ego as it was, but he, he was saying how it's now become out of control. And he stated a story about how he would say how, oh, guys, look, I have all these people wrap, wrapped around the buildings. And I guess he was referring to when they would go on tour and do like live podcasts and like different venues and what have you. He was saying, oh, I have all these people wrapped around the venue. To which then Mal said, no, Joe, you don't. You've never had people wrapped around the building before. We, as a collective have people wrapped around the building because the Joe Budden podcast is something that we have done. When you were a rapper, you never had this much attention. You never had people wrapped around the building like this. We as a collective, as the Joe Budden podcast, we as a trio have people wrapped around the building. And then I guess when it comes to something more personal, Roy stated that the tension really began when, Joe used to roast him about certain things. Now, these two or all three of them roasting one another is nothing new. We've seen it before. And they all have tough skin to that extent. But Rory was stating how there are certain things that Joe was roasting him about that were personal, like strictly confidential, nothing for the fans and the listeners to hear on air. This is all done off air, off the record, off the books, private conversations between those two, and he let out those skeletons, so to speak. You don't have to be a famous personality or a public figure or whatever the case may be to know that certain conversations stay in-house, whether it's between you and your friend, you and your significant other, someone that you chose to confide into with that personal information because you felt that you were safe in that moment of vulnerability with that person. Anyone knows, anyone who's been in that situation knows that information like that should never go public. And that's what Joe did. Went public with that information. Now, I can't even tell you what that information was because I listened to the pod here and there in segments and fractions. So it could have been anything. I probably heard it and didn't realize that it was something personal. But regardless, that's just something that you don't do. That's below the belt. So after hearing all this information being brought to the forefront now it just proves the point that Joe Budden is a textbook narcissist he's probably a sociopath at this point because he really believes what he's saying is fact and it proves that he does not know how to handle relationships whether they be romantic whether they be personal, like friendships, for example, and then whether they be business relationships. And we have seen this for the last 10 years now. Ever since this guy became a public figure, whether it's through the podcast or through his appearances on Love & Hip Hop, whatever the case may be, he has shown an ineptitude to handle business and to handle friendships hell mal even got into a story about the demise of of slaughterhouse being because of joe and what a whoopty freaking surprise said nobody at all and it had something to do with the renegotiation of contracts or whatever the case may be and it was something that everyone in the crew was all on board for, except for who? Joe Budden, of course. Royce five 5'9", one of the members of Slaughterhouse, was even telling Maul that you should watch out for Joe Budden. None of this is surprising. This is what Joe has always been. And I just find it very ironic, and I said this about a couple weeks ago. I just find it very ironic that throughout his career as a rapper, he has been screwed over by business executives and A&Rs and whomever Jay-Z himself included and knows what it feels like to be screwed, to be manipulated, to have the wool pull over your eyes by, by people higher up than him. And yet here he is doing it. To people that he calls his friends. And who knows what the future of his show has in store. Because now that he's going to get new co-hosts. There's no way that he's going to offer them a contract that's based on percentages. Because A. They weren't there when the show first started. like They didn't help him build it from the ground up. And B. When it comes to these contracts that he's going to propose to them. I'm sure they're going to be a lot more cheaper. And according to Joe, based on what Roy told him or based on what based on what Rory told us via Joe. That if he were to ever get new co-hosts, that he was going to pay them. What Roy and Mal make combined cut in half. So severely less than what he's paying Roy about. And he's going to do it on a salary basis. So for all we know, the salary could be good. It could be a decent salary. But the fact that he's going to undercut them is what's shisty about Joe's behavior. So I feel like all the people who listen to Joe's episode and his take on what happened with, with the quote unquote demise of Roy Mao, who were, you know, chomping at the bit and were celebrating the win, y'all gotta take a seat back. Y'all gotta take a thousand fifteen seats for that matter. Because with this recent divulge of information that we've received from Roy Amal shows that Joe Budden was basically lying for the most part in his dissertation of what happened. And if he wasn't lying then why the hell would you take down that episode? I can guarantee that that episode probably had more hits and more plays on it than any episode that he's ever done up until this point. And yet you take it down? Why, Joe? What are you hiding? And the funniest thing about this entire episode, and also equally the most disrespectful part about this episode, was two things, actually. One, when Mal was asking about the money and the percentages and everything not adding up, Joe Biden tells him to his face, Well, you got a calculator, don't you? Do the math yourself, nigga? Okay, wow, disrespectful, that's one thing. And two, the most disrespectful thing is that every quarter they are based on their contracts, which both lawyers agreed to, they are entitled to and by they, I mean Roy ML. They are entitled to see the numbers that the show is generating as well as how much the game getting paid based off the percentages because of their percentage stake uh, within the pod. Joe Budden, this guy, the businessman apparently, sends them an Excel spreadsheet. Ladies and gentlemen... Wi- when you send somebody an Excel spreadsheet breaking down numbers and what have you, that is not accounting. That is not accounting. That is something that you do when you're a small-time business owner and you don't have any proper accounting software or you don't know of any or you're basically just too cheap to pay for accounting software and you're just breaking down simple numbers. Using an Excel spreadsheet is something you do When you're in your younger years, maybe as a teenager or or even as a young adult, and you're in college, and you're just breaking down basic personal expenses for yourself, whether it's food, whether it's clothing, entertainment, rent, whatever stage you are in life, and you're just looking to do basic, basic expense calculations. That is what you use spreadsheets for. When you are managing, in Joe's words, a multi million dollar business that has partnerships with Cash App and Patreon, Spotify in the past, Apple in the past, etc., why the hell would you give somebody. An Excel spreadsheet. Your accounting company that you've that that you've partnered with, or that you're that you're paying on a monthly basis for, whatever the case may be, is wealth management. If anything, Rory and Mal should be getting those numbers from them, and I'm sure they have. But for Joe to send them a spreadsheet to show them phone numbers. Of what's really happening as far as the calculations are concerned. Is absolutely disrespectful. So in closing. To put this segment to bed. Joe is an asshole. Joe is a walking living piece of shit. And no one should go in business with him. Especially the ones that he claims to call his friends. Because Joe is the type of person where. In a collective of people, he will personally make sure and go out of his way to make sure that he is the only one on top. Speaking of which, another thing just came to my mind. Rory was saying how, you know, based on their salaries or not salaries, but based on their payments being based on percentages and what have you. Once the show's numbers increased, you know, with uh, with Patreon especially. Based on their percentages, they were getting paid a lot more. But because of that, the production increased. And a lot of members of the production, cast and crew, so people who handle the cameras and the microphones, the engineers, stated that they're all being overworked and underpaid. So Roy stated that instead of him getting paid for this particular month, he said to Patreon, don't pay me this month. Give that money to the cast and crew or to the crew, to the people working behind the scenes so that they get fair payment as well. Because Roy stated that he doesn't care about the money, like he doesn't care about the money to the extent where he doesn't feel like that he's going to starve or anything like that because he's been getting paid pretty well. But if it's all about the show, then everyone should be getting their fair cut of what's owed to them is basically what he was saying. And apparently Joe flipped out on him when he denied his payment from Patreon. So cast and crew, people working behind the scenes, engineers, cough, cough, Parks, Parks, who was on Joe Biden's pod the, uh, the this past week, sticking up for Joe, saying that he's been paid handsomely. But apparently, according to Rory, you were overworked and underpaid. So I don't know what that means. Looks like Parks has some explaining to do on his end, if he's going to go in that route. But regardless, this shows that Joe Budden only cares about Joe Budden and nobody else. Joe Budden is insecure and inferior on the inside. And all the people who took advantage of him during his early days as a rapper and basically uh, finessed him out of millions or at least hundreds of thousands of dollars... He now has that power and is now exercising that power onto other people. And what makes it worse is that it's people that he calls his friends. It's one thing if you're doing it to people that you have no... (coughs) It's one thing if you're doing it to people that you have no personal affiliation with whatsoever, but it's an entire different thing altogether when you're doing it to people that you allegedly consider to be your friends. Which is why I say that Joe Budden is a piece of shit. He'll always be a piece of shit. I don't care how much he talks about how he's going to therapy and all that. Listen, people, I've said this before in other pods. People, there are people out there who say that they're going to therapy and they use it as a flex. Flex. Because therapy is not the cool thing to do in certain communities, and for them to say that they're doing it means that they're one of a few people who are doing it, and when you're one of a few people who are doing something, it means that you like to feel exclusive, that you want to feel authentic, whatever the case may be. So for Joe to say that he's going to therapy, to me, is all bullshit. He probably is going to therapy, but he's clearly learning nothing from it, and he has the audacity to talk about, I don't want any bad energy around me. Nigga, you are the epitome of bad energy. You are a void. You are Lucifer incarnate. You are the grim reaper. You are death as a physical manifestation and a construct. That is what you are. You are bad energy. So peace to Rory and peace to Mal. And going forward, I would love to see these guys on a podcast together because this conversation was very interesting and based on their opinions that they've given on the, the Joe Button pod, you know, for the last few years, as far as what their take is on music, culture, sports, et etc., et they clearly have a lot of things to talk about. They have the personalities for it, I find. And I felt like they were just being used to balance Joe's enigmatic behavior and rants to give some balance and clarity. I feel like they can do that on their own. Now, I don't know. And I, honestly, I'm not sure. If Joe if what Joe's saying is true about them having a clause in the contract saying that they can't do their own pod or else uh, they'll be in breach of contract, which to me sounds like some Vince McMahon WWE bullshit. But if that's the case, then you know, wait out the year. Wait until what May of 2022 to do your own pod. But their voices need to be heard, in my personal opinion. Hey, if that means that you you gotta go on a podcast tour for an entire year and hop on other people's pods, You're not breaching your contract. Go ahead and do it. You're a hot commodity now because of this whole fiasco. I'm sure there's a ton of pods out there within the hip-hop sphere that would love to have you on as a guest to talk about this stuff and as well as other things as well. So do you guys get your money, uh, pay what you're owed, get what you're worth, and fuck Joe Budden. Simple as that. All right, now let's get into Trip Talk. Now, this week's edition of Trip Talk is going to be a bit different, actually. So you guys already know that with Trip Talk, I usually get the three hottest topics and discuss upon those topics and kind of get your feedback on what y'all think about those particular topics. However, this one's going to be a bit different because we have a new album that just dropped. And that new album is from J. Cole, a very heavily anticipated album, which is entitled The Offseason. So on that note, what I'm going to do is I'm going to dedicate this entire section or this entire edition of trip talk to a J Cole album review. All right. I haven't done an album review in a very long time. It's been a minute. I can't even remember the last time I did an album review. I think maybe the last one may have been the Carter five from Lil Wayne. That may have been the last one. I don't know. I'll figure it out. Either way, Let's talk about this album, The Offseason. Let's go. So the album starts off with the record "95 South," and the record actually features Cameron. Cameron's not rapping on it; he's basically just being J Cole's hype man, just hyping him up. Like Cole, they can't mess with you. You know what you do. You will know, go go attack these fools, get them, all that stuff. Which I thought was pretty cool, and it matched the beat because the beat. Was a straight sample and basically almost like a straight copy for copy, but just with a few added added drum loops uh, from the record you don't know from Jay Z off of the 2001 album The Blueprint, my personal favorite Jay Z album. And that beat was produced by Just Blaze, the the original one, I should say. Um, I like what he did. With, I liked what he did with this record. Um, it got your attention immediately right off the bat. The rattling snare drums, the, the heavy bass in there. They, they, they kept the sample intact. That, that sample is crazy. That's one of my all-time favorite Just Blaze beats. Um the, the record was very braggadocious of, of course. And he had a lot of good lines on that, on that record. Like one line he said was, Sleep is a cousin of death, no time to doze off. I really like that one. And then my favorite, my favorite, I guess, scheme or setup was shots popping off, y'all laid down. Cops chalking off your legs now. Shit, God watching like, hey, Yahweh. We sending them Yahweh. Whew. He had he had some lines in there. He had some lines. Okay, Cole. Okay. Clearly rust is a concept that you that you are foreign to. Alright. Um, uh, but yeah, I like the I like that record overall. He switched up the pace of his flow. Um, as well as his, as his vocal pitch as well, especially within the second verse. So he kind of gave us layers, you know, uh, from a, from a, from a performance standpoint as well. And then, of course, he had the lyrics to match with it. So it, it shows that he's growing, not only as a lyricist but as a performer on the microphone as well. So I like that. So afterwards, we get into the record uh, Amari, and we go into J Cole's prowess as a storyteller. So he goes into telling a story of a drug dealer from his hood, uh, and basically he's harmonizing on that record with a higher vocal tone, and then he inflicts a lot of passion within, within the harmonizing of that vocal tone as well. So he's doing it a lot in that record, especially with Melody. And the B is pretty somber, but then juxtaposed to the 808s within there as well. And I think the 808s go really well with, with his vocal tone when he's harmonizing and trying to give off that passion into, into the story that he's telling as well. It's a very short record as well. Almost like interlude length, if, if you will. But I liked it. It was cool. And then we go into My Life. And My Life is probably, after two listens of the album, My Life is probably my favorite record. Um, very passionate, very passionate starts off with a blues record sample. I can't remember the name of the record, but it's, it's a very somber, very somber sample that he uses. And then he goes in, starts using the, uh, 808s and Rattlesnare drums to be the foundation of the beat essentially. And then he uses a sped up flow to match the pace of those Rattlesnare drums as well. It's very, it's very, um, it's very rapid, and he uses a staccato flow to, to go with those drums as well. So staccato, as to what some people would say as the quote-unquote Migos flow, that would be the type of flow that he's using. But he's very articulate with that flow. A lot of rappers who use that flow nowadays, like they'll use it, but you don't understand what the fuck they're saying. But at least a Cole, when he's using that flow... He articulates his words so well. So while you're enjoying the flow and the pace of the of the record, you're also taking in what he's saying as well. So I really appreciate the fact that he made it a point of emphasis to actually articulate what the hell he was saying. And I wish a lot more rappers would, would take that approach rather than just mumbling, just to go with the cadence and the flow of the record as opposed to actually saying something. But I digress. So a lot of the song has to deal with uh, tales of drug abuse in his family and, his, and, and in his community. And not just abuse from the user standpoint, but abuse from the drug dealer standpoint. And he talks about how a lot of these drug dealers would use it to buy themselves the most gaudiest things, So jewels and cars and clothes, just to make themselves feel like the big shots of their community. And how some of those things allured him and tempted him, but he knew that that wasn't, wasn't the life for him and the hook I love the hook the hook is a sample of the record called My Life from Pharaoh Monch and i think that record came out in 2002 and also features Styles P I love the hook it's basically a remixed version of the hook and at first it sounded like Jay Cole singing the hook but then it's midway it sounded like somebody else was singing the hook either way whoever was singing the hook did a bang out job of the hook it there was so much passion and soul in it i loved it i absolutely loved it 21 Savage made an appearance on this record and I gotta admit never really been big on 21 Savage but he put in work he put in work on this record the only time I've really rocked with 21 Savage was ironically was a record called um a lot featuring J. Cole that record I really liked and that's the only record that I've heard from from 21 Savage because I don't want to hear anything else from him. If it doesn't match that, I don't want to hear anything else from him. But that record that he did with Cole on, on this album, uh, My Life and His Verse, I liked it. I liked it. And he talked about from the perspective of whether or not people will view view you different because of your wealth, no matter what situation you're in, whether you just blew up as a superstar or because of the job that you currently have. And you know people will look at you And will determine whether or not they're going to respect you based on what type of job you're working. That's what I got from his verse. And I got to admit, I liked it. It was a good performance from him. So, Tony Savage, shout out to you. But yeah, overall, my life, very good record. Probably my favorite record on the album um, so far. So, let's go to Applying Pressure now. Applying Pressure, this is where J. Cole kind of goes into his boom-bap bag. He's a child of the uh, 90s East Coast era. And so he made it very, very, very apparent on this record. Um, So there's no hook, no cadence or structure that he wanted to focus on. This was just straight bars. Uh, He was talking generally about his money grind from when he first started up until now. And one of the lines that he said on this record was, that I liked the most was, if you broke and clown a millionaire, then the joke is on you. And we've seen this so many times from people online, on social media, who will clown millionaires for certain decisions that they made that they don't see in the long run. And it's like, how are you, somebody who spends their money on stupid things, going to judge a millionaire for what they spend their money on? Like, they're a millionaire for a reason, you know? And I'm not going to say that millionaires don't spend their money on stupid things. But for somebody who's broke, completely broke, and who makes poor, financial decisions on their end clowning a millionaire it's like dude at the end of the day they're not the ones living paycheck to paycheck you are and the only reason why you're living paycheck to paycheck is because you make stupid decisions on what you buy things that will not influence your life for the long run in any way shape or form so i really like that so now we go to punching the clock what i liked about this record is that he sampled Uh, Damian Lillard's interview from after one of his games in the bubble and I think it was that game that he had against the Dallas Mavericks where he just went off and at the end of the game was it I I can't remember if it was the Dallas Mavericks but it was somebody but after the game he just you see him in the camera just shouting out put some respect on my motherfucking name and then the interview he gave after was you know we didn't come here to play we didn't come here to waste no time and that's a clip that you hear at the beginning of the of the record and i said to myself are we gonna get a game dollar verse on here are we but then we we didn't get it so i was like ah okay all right i'm okay i won't take any points away from that but i I wouldn't mind hearing those two on a record i really wouldn't because dame's style is very similar to j cole in my opinion but anyways i digress uh but yeah overall the beat was it was okay it was an okay beat nothing too crazy about it it was very somber um And it kind of dealt with the pressure of fame as a whole. So it's a very short song. It was all right. The beat was, yeah, it was all right. It wasn't too crazy, but it it was what it was. Then we get into 100 mil. We get into 100 mil and you hear the horns ringing in the background. Uh, He uses a very rhythmic flow throughout the entire record. And it talks about how his passion for rap is still intact and how he's rhyming in his prime. And despite earning so much money after all these years, he's still rapping at a prime level and that his hunger for the game hasn't changed. And we see it throughout the album up until this point, you know, Um, and it continues throughout the entire album as a whole. So he's not wrong on that. So he's talking about how even though he's made so much money, the grind is still on his mind and he still wants to rap at an elite level so that he doesn't have any signs of a fall off or anything like that. So I thought it was cool. Then we go into pride is a devil. And in this record, he uses like a, a guitar sample in the background and then kind of goes with the standard 808 bass and drums that it's pretty prevalent throughout this entire album. And he talks about how pride makes you cover up all of your natural human emotions just for the purpose of maintaining an appearance that's inauthentic to you as a person. And it's true. You know, pride is the devil at that moment. You know, pride cometh before the fall. And a lot of people get into, you know, their pride bag when they don't want to reveal their true emotions. They don't want to see. They don't want people to see them as vulnerable in any given moment or situation. And I get why, because there are people out there who will prey on anyone who is having a vulnerable moment. There are people out there who like to prey on the weak. And I guess J. Cole is describing the fact that he doesn't want to show signs of vulnerability or else his enemies will come out from the the woodworks and will prey on him. So I get where he's coming from on that. But he's also very self-aware of the fact that pride is a devil because because pride will get you a lot of things negatively. It can get you killed. It can have you compromised. Um, It can have you in such a bad way that it'll be hard to rebound from where you once were. So I get the fact that, you know, he has to put up that wall. But I also respect the fact that he's very transparent about what pride can do if you let it consume you. So I like that record as, as far as the message goes. The beat was, beat was all right. It was cool. Now he goes into another record called Let Go My Hand. So very similar to the previous record. He talks about how he had to maintain a tough persona to stay safe how he had fears of being hurt severely and possibly dying, describes his how his last uh, physical fight was with Diddy, of all people. And I never heard about any of this before. Diddy didn't mention it. Cole didn't mention it. There was no news about this. I mean, we heard about rumors of a fight between Diddy and Drake, um, but we've never heard about a fight between J. Cole and Diddy. So that was very interesting that he revealed that. I'm sure there's going to be more details about that. Um, following the release of this album and one line that he said in this record was innocence is just ignorance before it's introduced to currency and clips which i like because it's basically him saying that never meet your heroes because you'll be disappointed and basically just calling his heroes heroes assholes and that was probably a shot at diddy because he did mention that He listened to one of his albums so much in the seventh grade that you would have thought that he was his favorite rapper, but now he basically doesn't think much of him. So interesting take on that. Then we go into the interlude. So the interlude is a track that everyone heard before the album came out. It was the first record to be released from the album. It's a single. I don't know if it's a single. I guess you can technically call it a single since it was the one record that came out before the album was released. So take it for what you will but basically he's just going up in his in his bar bag again uh and essentially the whole premise of the record was talking about how the tough times he went through growing up built his character. Uh one of the lines that he said in the in the record that caught, caught my attention was Hello Blues like the Rolling 60s. Rolling 60s being the Crips. So I thought that was kind of cool. And that was also the uh the branch of the Crips that Nipsey Hustle came from and he also mentioned a line about Nipsey Hustle as well. I can't remember what it was. But yeah, it was a cool record. I liked it. Um, it's an interlude, so I don't really put much stock into an interlude. Uh, but it was cool. I liked it. Then he comes up with another record called "The Climb Back." Uh, the Climb Back features a sped-up soul sample, in the background a sped-up soul sample in the in the background, um, and that's pretty much the case for most of the records on this album. On top of that, he had quite a few good lines in here, so. I like the one line he said where he says, you see how I flip like exclamation points. I thought that was kind of clever. And then he also said, one phone call gets you canceled like a homophobe. (laughs) And that's basically a reflection of the times you're in with cancel culture and all that good stuff. So I like that sense of self-awareness in there. On top of that, uh, he speeds up his flow and his delivery on the second verse. And then overall, he just delivers his perspective on multiple topics revolving around society. So it was a cool record. I liked it. Then he gets into the record Close. So Close is a very short – it's a very short record, um, and it's basically another storytelling record. And Obviously, storytelling is his bag. So he basically talks about how the street life can change people for the worse, and then it ends up being a story about somebody that he grew up with who was part of the street life, and he saw how after many years when he – first met up with his friend once again, how the street life had already consumed him and taken hold of him. And then it ends with him saying how his friend's mom gave him a call to say that he had been shot and killed. So again, just another story of how, you know, the street life isn't for everyone and how also there's no end to the street life except jail or death. And that's the reality of the situation. And the album concludes with hunger on hillside And what I liked about this record was even though the beat wasn't all that crazy, um, I do like the use of strings on the on the beat. The singer on the hook, I'm not sure who it is, but he did a really good job of layering his voice on the hook um, with his vocals and then just harmonizing on it in general. And then Cole just discussing his retrospective um, throughout his career, basically. So I thought it was a good way to close out the album overall. I thought the album was good. Um, I liked his improved use of delivery. Uh, He knows at this point how to use his instrument as a voice, something that Kendrick Lamar, for example, has been doing throughout his entire career. But Cole has finally seemed to master that ability, which I really like. Um, I like how he's using different flows on different records, depending on the feel of it and what have you. But then also going back to his natural flow, depending on what type of record it is. And, of course, the storytelling, his storytelling is always on point. He already knows how to tell a tale. So I really like that from him, going into his bag on that. My only knock on the album is my primary knock with him on most of his albums, which is the beat selection. There were some beats that I really liked, such as 95, uh, 95 South and My Life, which is my favorite record overall. Um, and even, even um, to a certain extent hunger on hillside i kind of like that beat to a certain extent it's very minimal but i guess based on the performance of him and the uh the vocalist on there it it worked for what it was and i do like the addition of the strings on there but for the most part you know it's it's that it's kind of like that telltale of j cole not putting a whole lot of degree of musicality into the production and it's funny because i was having a discussion with some of my friends yesterday uh, shout out to my Dibzy Mandem. If you know, you know. Uh, we were discussing about how Jay Cole's production can be a bit lazy sometimes, and I didn't get that as a whole on this album. But it had moments where I felt like it could have he could have done more on, on on that on on the project. Um, I felt like his production peak was 2014 Four Sales Drive, where he was in his bag with the production. He added layers of musicality to where you felt like on some records you were listening to an orchestra um, and you were just listening to this perfect uh, symphony that was in perfect harmony with all the instrumentation that he was using to flow along with one another. That incorporation with, with his content, with his lyrical ability, with the delivery that he was using, it was the perfect blend. Is it a perfect album? No, but it's as close as uh, it's it's as close to a perfect album as he's going to get. To me, to this day, it's his best album. Um, I wasn't expecting this album to be that. I just wanted this album to be better than For Your Eyes Only because that's my least favorite album from Cole. And at the very least, this album did deliver on that expectation. Uh, But still, the beats were still a bit of a question mark, in my opinion. But overall, I did enjoy listening to this album my biggest takeaway was the fact that it was only 12 songs deep and not all the songs were that long either. And to me, that's perfectly fine. I don't like it when rappers have like 20 songs on an album, just so they can, you know, post it on Apple music and Spotify and, you know, and have as much streaming numbers as possible, or to create as many opportunities for high streaming numbers as possible, because I feel like it dilutes the art as a whole. With that said, uh, going back to my beats argument, I feel like J. Cole is at the point in his career, or at least as a fan, I'm at the point where I will no longer expect amazing production or inspiring production at the very least from J. Cole. Now, even though this album does have, you know, multiple producers on it, J. Cole still gets a final say on what he wants to have incorporated uh, in every beat. And he kind of plays the role of executive producer in that regard. And I've always said that, you know, to have a good beat. And I said this last week as well, that to have a good beat doesn't mean that has to be friendly for the mainstream or anything like that. It has nothing to do with that. You could have an album like Flower Boy from Tyler, the Creator, where the production from top to bottom is stellar. And you could have a degree of musicality to it that blends in with the vocals, that blends in with the delivery, with the content. Uh, with, with, the, uh, with the lyricism, et cetera, et cetera, and have it be a good to great song and great album overall because of it. So I felt like J. Cole didn't really hit the money on the mark when it came to that consistently, but there were some beats on here where I like, man, I really like this beat. But then there were some beats on here where I'm like, eh, it's, it's okay. Mind you, there's not a bad beat on here, but there's a bunch of either okay beats or pretty good beats, but nothing but not as a whole like oh my god this is so amazing. Maybe two or three beats where I'm like man this is okay cool cool you're in your bag on this. I like this. Cool. But overall, I like the record. Now, what would I give it out of 10? For now after two listens, I would give it I would give it 8 cools out of 10. So 8 out of 10 basically. I'm going to give it 8 out of 10. I'll see how I feel after a third, fourth, fifth listen, so on and so forth. But after two listens, giving an 8 out of 10, I listened to it for the second time right before I started this pod to kind of put down some notes as to what I liked about it and, and everything in between. And the first time I listened to it was yesterday when I went on a run. And what I liked is the fact that by the time I was done my run, I had already listened to the album from front to back. And listen to the first three songs after I listen to it from front to back. So it's a very short listen. Like maybe just under 40 minutes if, if I if I have to say. Like definitely under 40 minutes for sure. It's probably anywhere between 35 to 37 minutes if I had to guess. But overall, it's a good listen. So I implore you all to go check it out. Go listen. And shout out to him for being only the second rapper to be a professional basketball player, because he's now a member of the Basketball Africa League, and he plays for the team that's based out in Rwanda. Uh, his first team, or sorry, his first game, rather, is coming up very soon, so i will be curious to see the highlights of that, but good for him on pursuing his dream of uh, being a professional basketball player. Uh, I like that. I like that a lot, but yeah, good album from him overall. I liked it. It was cool. I'll, give, I'll definitely give it another listen for sure, and I'm curious to know what y'all thought about that and do you agree with my review if you have listened to the album do you think there are some things that i missed do you think there are some things that j cole is missing from from this particular project either way hit me up on my socials to let me know and now it is time for the final segment of the week that you all know and love so with that being said who has entered the shallow walls of the hall of shame this week who has been crowned the captain of coonery this week. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Wankster of the Week. You said you were and, you need to stop and this week's Wankster of the Week goes to the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, and his administration. Why? Well, apart from them being wanksters every day, they're getting the wanksters this week in particular for extending, yes, ladies and gentlemen, for extending the stay-at-home order. He has now ordered citizens of Ontario to stay at home until June 2nd of this year. So we already just came out from the 30-day stay at home order that was issued what early April I believe. Was it April or I don't know, I've lost track of this point. Was it late April? No, where are we at right now? We're in the middle of May, right? Yeah, so early April. And so now he has extended that order until June as if that's going to improve the numbers because it's not. And it's funny that he thinks that it's going to improve the numbers of COVID cases, but it really isn't. It's just him saying that, I'm doing something, I'm helping. No, motherfucker, you're not helping. You're, you're, you've probably made it worse. You almost made it worse when you encouraged police officers to, to do the whole carding thing. And luckily for them, for for once in very few times, they actually had sense and said, no, we're not going to do that. So fuck you, Doug Ford, and fuck your administration. You're getting this wankster. Do you deserve it? Of course you do. And with that said, ladies and gents, it's time to end off another pod. want to thank you all for tuning in as always. And if you want to follow the show, uh, hit us up on all of our socials. Hit us up on social media at Cool Radio CC. We're up on YouTube. We're up on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud, of course. And then for the podcast specifically, you can uh, hit us up on SoundCloud as well as Spotify and Google Podcasts. And once again, I am your man, DM Cool, and I'm here to remind you that Cool Click. Oh, I messed up on that. Once again, ladies and gents, I am your host, DM Cool, and I want to thank y'all for listening on another weekly edition of Cool Radio. And as you already know, Cool Radio is... What am I fucking up on this for? Cool Radio is an edition. Not an edition. Cool Radio is a submission. Why am I forgetting the term? Cool Radio is a division. There we go. Okay. So once again, I am your host, DM Cool. And I want to thank you all for tuning in as always. And as you already know, Cool Radio is a division of Cool Click Media and Entertainment, reminding you each and every day that we are out here creating our own legacies. Keep it gravy and wavy. We are out of here. Peace. Cool.